Welcome, everybody, to the Want to Learn podcast, COVID-19 edition. If you're sick and tired of the corona apocalypse stuff going on and you want to be safe, don't hide yourself in a room. Go outside through Hike the Pacific Crest Trail. Now is the best time to do that. You can get away from all the stuff. You can be safe and social distancing to the max and enjoy your life. And by the time you come back from the PCT, the whole scandal and the whole apocalypse will be done. I talked with Gen Shimbayana-san. This was recorded before the corona apocalypse started. And he and I talk about what it was like for him to through-hike the PCT. He also did El Camino de Santiago, which I don't recommend as much because it's a little bit harder to socially isolate yourself. This year is about going deep into the woods. Get out there now. Don't wait for this to get worse and to die. Ah! Enjoy. In this podcast, I want to talk to you about your experience on the Pacific Crest Trail because you did it in 2018, relatively recently, and El Camino Santiago, which you just did last year. And from our initial discussions, it's quite more populated. That's one of the obvious differences that we'll talk about. And then we want to talk about the veganism. And finally, how you, after working for Google, you retired relatively early. And this whole idea of managing your investments and your life and your way of life so that you can retire early and have more flexibility in what you do in the second half of your life. So let's start. Before we get into all that, let's get right into the Pacific Crest Trail. Why did you pick the Pacific Crest Trail instead of what a lot of people do is the Appalachian Trail, for example, to begin with? I have lived in California and Nevada total 20 years. And uh, um, the first time I actually learned about Pacific Crest Trail was when I hiked John Muir Trail in 2015. And I hiked John Muir Trail from Yosemite Valley to Mount Whitney, it's a 221 mile trail from north to south. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pacific Crest Trail hikers uh, basically go through John Muir Trail. It overlaps with BCT and JMT overlaps at, in the High Sierra. And their hike Pacific Crest Trail, uh, Sierra Park, from south to north. So I met 20, 30 PCT hikers every day when I was hiking John Muir Trail. And uh, I was just so impressed because I was struggling to hike 200 miles. And by the time they met me, they have hiked 800, 900 miles already. And they just hiked uh, so differently from any other you know, day hikers or backpack, local backpackers. And uh, they usually inspired me to hike PCT. Got it. Now, the PCT has a system now that didn't exist. I did the PCT in 2006. Back then, I just asked for a permit and got a permit. It was easy. And I was going southbound, and there was less than a, fewer than a dozen people who were doing it southbound. And only three people actually completed it. It was Scott Williamson, who was doing a yo-yo that year, and Mayu and I. And that was it. It was a high snow year. Nowadays, things are very different. Getting a permit and that whole situation. Can you explain to for those who are out of the loop? Sure. I th- uh, arguably, the getting the permit is the most difficult part of PCT right now. Uh, every year, probably uh, about 5,000 people try to hike PCT from south to north. And uh, 
because uh, the PCT association wants to minimize the impact to the trail, they allow only 50 hikers, up to 50 hikers a day to start from the southern terminus. So they issue only 50 permits per day. And they open the permit process typically end of October or beginning of November. And you have to be right in front of the computer and just click, you know, as soon as the permit process opens. In my year, so that was uh, November 1st, 2017, uh, 10 a.m. I think. Yeah, and uh, so if you're listening to this and you dream of doing the PCT, get on front of your computer screen November 1st or find out what the actual date is and get ready to click on I want my permit button. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and a lot of people want to start in April or early May. That's the best time to start PCT at Southern Terminus if you want to uh, through hike the whole thing in one year, because if you start too early, you get snowed on and it's very cold in the south and if you start too late it's too hot in the south and also you may not reach canada before it really starts snowing in washington now i'm a big fan because i'm biased and did it southbound but i'm a big fan of doing it southbound and i still don't understand until this day why so few people actually consider doing it southbound and i i think it's changing but very slowly. I mean, still 90, 95% do it northbound, right? Yes, that's correct. What's the problem? I mean, I realize you start in snow from the first day versus the desert mm -hmm. on the first day if you're going north. Well, but, but okay, so you practice a little bit on snow, you get used to it, and then you just jump into snow, you get it over with, you hit the Sierras, there's no snow. It's great. And then you go down into the desert in October or so, and it's cool temperatures. It's not that crazy. There's still water caches. There's still trail angels occasionally throwing water out there. Anyway, it's doable. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of people are finding that out. So I think last year there were 200, 300 southbounders. And now PCT Association is considering, I think they uh, already decided to put the quota on a southbound permit too right but it's definitely a lot easier yeah it's much easier to get than uh, northbound permit and i think uh, a lot of people do northbound because as you said there is snow in till late june in washington so you can't st really start earlier than that and then you have to finish sierra by the end of say september because it will start snowing so I think you have to hike much faster to complete the through hike if you do a southbound. Yes and no, sort of both, yes. Um, so I think the main difference, and I wrote an article about this, if anybody wants to go to my website and you do slash Sobo, so S-O-B-O, so francetapon.com slash Sobo, you should find the article. But basically what I was saying in the article is that if you're going northbound, the advantage is that you have about 700 miles, about 1,000 kilometers to prepare your legs mm -hmm. and your strength. Mm -hmm. But the moment you enter into the Sierra Nevada, then you have a timetable, a ticking time clock, which gives you about four months. So let's say you get into the Sierra Nevada in the middle of June. You add four months. That's July, August, September, October, October 15th. Mm -hmm. That's four months. October 15th, you should be at the Canadian border. Mm -hmm by October 15th, Different. right? Different. So that's four months. 
now and you and it's hard in many years to get into the Sierra Nevada before June fifteenth. You can, but it's you're you're going to be going through a lot of snow to do that. So as a result, okay. Now let's look at the reverse. You can't really start before June fifteenth in the Cascades up in Canada because there's so much snow in Washington at that in that time of year. So usually you start late, like end of June or maybe July 1st. So July 1st, and you add four months, August, September, October, November. So, yeah, I guess you you, you, it's, you, you can't do it that fast. You need to get through that in three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, uh, Washington is pretty steep. You know, there are lots of up and downs compared to the southern 700 yes. miles part. Yes. So you can develop your legs before you get to high Sierra. But if you uh, do a sobo, you have to be, you know, in a really good shape right off the bat. Yes, and I agree a hundred percent with that. You have to be in great shape right off the bat for yeah. sure. And that is the, uh, and I guess that little difference is enough to scare away ninety percent of the PCT hikers. I, I think a lot of people want to go on these long through hikes. Part of it to have solitude, and part of it to be in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And when you've got three thousand people, two thousand people doing the same trail in the same direction, you're not going to get a whole ton of solitude as maybe you might have wished for, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, you could, you know, when you're, when you're hiking during the day, you can get some solitude, but there are, because there are limited campsites in some places, sometimes, you know, you arrive at the campsite late in the day, almost sunset, then it's all completely packed. And you have to keep moving, or you have to really squeeze into other between tents. Yeah. So, uh, but some people actually look for that kind of experience. You know, some that's people right. want to be more social. Yes, and that's and that's great. And and of course, you have no problem with that. But for those who paradoxically want, you know, a lot of solitude, then they might be somewhat disappointed or surprised by how hard it can be to find, especially like you say, at the end of the day, which is one thing I would often do, even though I didn't have problems finding solitude, I just did it for good practices to get water around, let's say, I don't know, one o'clock, sorry, one hour before I plan to go to sleep. And I bring a lot of water, maybe three or four liters, and then hike for about an hour and then find a campsite in the middle of nowhere where there's no water nearby because almost everybody likes to be near a water source that's correct yeah yeah so campsites right by the river or lake are always crowded right and so one way to get around that is that you just bring a big platypus that has six liters or whatever and you just bring a whole bunch of water the other thing i do is that i would never cook where i camp did you do that would you always cook where you camp yeah for dinner yes i almost always had the hot dinner I'm talking about having a hot dinner at your campsite. Yes, I had hot dinner at the campsite. But you're vegan, so maybe the the bears weren't interested in your food. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, vegans are immune from bear attack. No, just kidding. <laughs> Be a vegan, and that way bears won't attack you. But those two techniques, it's not for everybody, but it could really help get you some solitude at night. In my case, I didn't cook where I camped, so I would always eat my biggest meal of the day sometime in the afternoon, mm-hmm. sometime where it's hot, where I didn't feel like hiking a lot, like maybe 2 p.m. or so, maybe 3 p.m. And then I would snack the rest of the evening. I would brush my teeth maybe one hour before, uh, as I'm walking, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. as I'm going to my campsite. I, and I didn't want to camp by the water also because that's usually the coldest place to hike. I mean, to, to sleep. Yes, that's right. Yeah, cold air goes lower, you know, elevation. So camping right by the river or lake is usually not a good idea. Yeah. Right, and yet everybody does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also animal tends to come to the water too. So exactly. So, so this is that thing. And so, the, so I just thought in established campsites come sometimes bears, whether they can smell your food or not, they might go there or so. But certainly when you cook in your campsite, you're going to send out a wide call signal to all the bears in the nearby areas. And not just bears, but also raccoons, other rodents, and just say, hey, over here, there's a lot of nice, good food. And by not cooking where I camped, and also I just didn't like going to bed with a full stomach. So I would like to, you know, have, because if I eat a bunch of food and then go right to bed, to me, I just personally don't sleep well. But other people like that warm stomach. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, actually, I did exactly what you said. I usually had dinner and just went to sleep right away. But yeah, that but but that, you, that worked for you. Yeah, that worked for me. But yeah. everybody's different, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Excellent. A lot of times in the PCT, people have had to skip because of fires, uh, because of conditions, snow. What? How was it in your year in two thousand eighteen? Um. So I did f- flip flop or skip some section and then came back later within the same year and uh, fill the gap. So I hiked from Southern Terminus all the way to Kennedy Meadows, which is a Southern end of Sierra. And then I entered the Sierra and I exited from Kersage Pass, which is like, uh, you know, first uh, just, yeah, of the Sierra Nevada. Mm -hmm. And then there, there were lots of snow, but I was ready to go back in, and then storm came in, and I don't mind hiking in snow, uh, hiking on snow. I live in Reno. I I'm a skier, and I'm very used to s- snow, but I do mind hiking in snowstorm. It's uh, two different things, and because High Sierra doesn't have any road crossings, if you get into trouble, helicopter rescue is the only way to get out of the trouble. And if there's a storm, helicopter can fly. So you're really on your own. And I felt that uh, there was too little safety margin for me. So I waited for a few days, storm stayed, and uh, I waited a couple more days, and storm didn't go away. So at that time I was staying in a bishop, and uh, I decided to just come back home my home in Reno and wait out and storm ended up staying over Sierra for almost three weeks wow yeah it was uh, May and it's not uncommon for spring storm to hit Sierra so eventually I ran out of my patience and I looked at my calendar and if I just you know keep waiting I may not I have enough time to hit the Canadian border before end of September Right. So, so just to get people to go backwards a little bit, you started in like March 15th, correct? That's correct. That was my start date. Which you might have been perhaps the first person that season. Uh, really, there are a few people, yeah, on trail, but much less than, you know, April or May. Right, right. And then, so that got you to Kennedy Meadows in May. Yes, I hit Kennedy Meadows on May 4th. And so that's pretty, I mean, there's some people who are not even starting the PCT at May 4th. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're already at Kennedy Meadows waiting. Like, okay, great. I'm ready to go. And you're like, oh, crap. There's a bunch of snow hitting. So, so therefore, you decided to do that section later. What month did you actually go back to the Sierra? Okay. So, I skipped the Sierra and basically hiked from Sonora Pass to Chester, which is mile 1331, uh, around the midpoint of the PCT. That's about 300 miles uh first and then went back into Kersage Pass on June 14th and the, the snow was not an issue at all at that point there were some snows over passes especially the north side so I hiked on snow but I did not need to use micro spikes or uh, ice axe or mm -hmm. anything and uh, uh, in addition to snow another big challenge in the series are stream crossings mm -hmm. And uh, in a high snow year, you know, a lot of snow turned into a lot of water. And as you may have heard, in 2017, the year before I hiked PCT, a couple of young female hikers uh, drowned and died in, uh, in the stream crossings. I actually did not hear about this. So tell us, in case somebody else hasn't heard about this, what's the story there? These are through hikers or just random through hikers? hikers. They're, they're both through hikers. One was from Japan, the other one from China. And uh, they're both uh, very young, I think uh, early 30s or late 20s. And they're both uh, relatively short. And uh, they're both solos, which was probably the you know, biggest uh, concern. They were both what? I'm sorry. Solos. Soloist. Yeah. Okay. Solos. But they, when the, so they were alone, mm -hmm. but but they both died not together separately. They were separate, but like a two weeks apart. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So they so and the same river killed them. Um, not the same river. One was uh, drowned in South Fork of Kings River, just north of uh, uh, Kersage Pass, and uh, the other one was. Uh, Around in, uh, uh, I think it was Run Ranch Creek. I think uh, I forgot the exact name. Okay, but Creek, but it's in the Yosemite National Park, north of Tuolumne Meadows. Okay, hold on, because the two rivers I remembered that that everybody was afraid of was I think it was Evolution mm -hmm. Creek, mm -hmm. and then the other one was Bear, Bear Creek, creek yeah. right? And you're saying that they didn't die in either one of those two, but they died in another creek? They're different ones. Really? So I don't yeah. even remember the... I mean, here's, a, again, by the way, another plug for going southbound is that when you go southbound, you come into the Sierras in September and these creeks are like little dribbling, yeah. you know, you hardly get your feet wet. Yeah, <laughs> could be even dry. The creeks may not exist. Right, yeah. right. And so meanwhile, you know, the, the poor northbounders are suffering through these tremendous creek crossings. The southbounders, there are some creek crossings in Washington State, but almost all of them have bridges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, High Sierra is probably the um, only place you really have to worry about stream crossing things. Yeah, other places either there's a bridge, or by the time you get there, it's dry. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, so yeah, both hikers were hiking by themselves, and uh, you know I can understand their you know psychology because if you hike you know 800, 900 miles from Southern Terminus. And you know you're in the middle of the mountain, and you hit the raging stream. It's very hard to say, oh well, you know I can cross this. Let's turn around. You probably you know want to at least give it a shot. Right. No, I agree with that. When I was doing my yo-yo of the Continental Divide Trail, I faced 
probably my toughest stream crossing was when I got to Yellowstone National Park and I was trying to do a a different loop through the park to get to see a little bit more on my northbound journey and not just stay strictly on the CDT. So I made it a little bit longer. But in the, as a result, I had to cross the Yellowstone River. Now, on the map, you see this little dot, dot, dot going across the Yellowstone River. And you say, oh, great. There must be a bridge there. It's the fucking Yellowstone River, <laughs> for God's sakes. It's like, this has to have a bridge. So I get there. And lo and behold, there's no bridge. And I'm like, I'm looking at my map, looking at my map. No, I had no GPS, by the way. So I'm just like, and then I see, looking all the way across the river, I see a sign. And I look behind me, I see another sign. I'm like, okay, this is the place you got to cross. <laughs> there's, there's a sign behind me, and there's a sign 50 meters, or about half a football field, across. <laughs> and this water, you step in one meter into the water, you're already up to your waist. I mean, like you're just stepping into it and you're like, you got to go 50 meters, 50 yards across. And I was like, Oh boy. So I just put all my stuff in a, wrapped it up in, I emptied my water bottle, blew up a bunch of air in it. I put all my stuff in plastic and I wrapped it all in my tarp and basically made my uh, backpack as buoyant as possible and as waterproof as possible. Put my camera deep, 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 deep into it. And then I just swam. I left my, I think I left my shoes on and then, yeah, I just swam across 50 yards and the river was just pushing me downstream, 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 and eventually it turns, but I got across the river before it turned. But it is a perfect example of what you were just saying that at that point I had walked about 2000 miles Mm -hmm. and I'm like, this silly little river called the Yellowstone is not going to stop me. I'm just going to go do it. Yeah. 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 That's a dangerous psychology, I think. Yeah. And uh, so one of the hikers was from Japan, and she came to the U.S. to hike PCT. So all her family was in Japan who don't speak English. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, their daughter doesn't contact them, right? And uh, she had made some trail family or friends and started hiking PCT. So they started posting on Facebook and asking if anybody had seen this hiker. And I was uh, on a Facebook because I was doing research for my next year's PCD hike. And I speak Japanese and English. And I'm pretty familiar with Sierra because I live in Vino and Sierra is my, basically my home ground. So I started doing a little, you know, translator between uh, her family and uh, uh, search and rescue effort. And so I was uh, a little more involved in that uh, Involved um, accident than other, you know, hikers, and uh, it was so shocking that when uh, her body was discovered in the Sierra. Where, where was it downstream? I imagine. Um, I think she went a little bit upstream from trail. That's where her body was discovered by uh, the hikers. Wait, I thought she died in the trying to cross the creek. Trying to cross creek, but uh, she could not obviously cross at the trail because it was water was raging. So you have to go either upstream or downstream to find, you know, shallow spot or right. uh, stepping stones you can use. Right. And I think she went a little upstream. Right. But then she didn't even, she died before she even tried to get into the creek or she went upstream and died upstream. Yeah, exactly. So she went upstream and uh, tried to cross there. And, and immediately died. 
uh, well, nobody knows, you know, how what happened. But I mean, her body was found up, uh, upstream of the trail. That's correct. Upstream of the trail in the river. In the river, kind of stuck against some rock or, yeah. or, or branch or something that was yeah. holding her down. Yeah, that's what I heard, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, so, so she did the right thing in the sense that she was smart enough to realize that if I'm going to cross this raging river, I need to go upstream, which is the smart strategy. Don't go downstream. But either she didn't go upstream enough, she just misjudged it. And mm. sometimes that's uh, sometimes it's just slippery rock, for example. It has algae mm. on it. And so you just step on the algae, and it's not deep, but because you slipped on the algae, then whoop, there you go, and have a nice day. Yeah, that's right. And uh, if, you know, you're wearing 30, 40 pounds pack. Remember, you know, High Sierra, there's no resupply points for long stretch. I think that was a yeah, stretch 100 without resupply for 120 miles or so. Yeah. So she must have had eight days, nine days of food, full pack. Yeah. And you, you know, sleep in the river and then it's very difficult to get up. And what about the other person? Do you know, you probably know less details about her death. The other, it was a Chinese lady, you said? Yes, Chinese lady. Um, Same year, but a different location. That's correct. Um, so we found the Japanese girl's body, and then only a couple of weeks later, there was another uh, people, another hiker was missing, the Chinese hiker was missing. And uh, we contacted uh, uh, Yosemite National Park search and rescue, and uh, yeah, they found her body in a different creek, you know, inside Yosemite National Park. Wow, amazing. And so I can see now why when you were standing in Kennedy Meadows on June 15th or whatever it was, no, you were in May. Uh, sorry, you were in May, yeah. and, then you th and then you attempted to hike, and then you got into a snowstorm. All these thoughts about these two female hikers who died the previous year probably was going through your head and saying, here I am. I'm about to go solo into a snowstorm in the Sierra, yeah. and I'll just be another statistic for the 2018 season. Yeah, yeah. You know, so how can I, you know, be myself become a victim? You know, I really wanted to avoid another, you know, right. serious fatal accident. You know. Maybe had those deaths not happened the year before, you might have just had more, you know, stupidity and just said, go for it. <laughs> well, I... I hike in Sierra a lot, so I have a really great respect on uh, Sierra weather. So, but yeah. at the same time, I agree with you. And but here's the thing that sometimes is a double-edged sword experience, because I almost got myself killed in the Olympic National Park in Washington State because of my extensive experience in snow and walking and all that stuff. And so sometimes what happens is you get cocky and you start get, you get your guard down. And so you have a you've have a lot of respect in the Sierra. You've done a lot of backpacking in it, but you still respect it. But some people get that experience and then they lose a bit of their fear and respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that can happen. Overconfidence. Right. Yeah, that can happen. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to do the Sierra, and then you went back to Chester to go north again. Yes, I restarted from Chester on, I clearly remember this, uh, on July 4th, July 4th. So they were doing a parade, July 4th parade in the Chester. Well, uh, here's a silly question, because why not at that point, since you've already flip-flopped, mm -hmm. why not just flip 
all the way to Manning Park and then go south to Chester. Hmm. Hmm. I never. Oh, okay. I never actually thought about it because I really wanted to finish at the northern terminus. It's uh, just, you know, I wanted to have a sense of achievement at the monument right. instead of if you, I went up to Manning Park or um, actually you can't start from Manning Park you have because you can't cross US Canadian border that way. But if I have flipped to Sobo, I will finish BCT in Chester, right? Which is basically just a middle point. So, yeah, that's why I just had to continue from Chester. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I understand. There, it, Chester is not exactly a thrilling location. Yeah, to <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just a really small town. Right, exactly. Yeah. And they don't have a monument. I mean, not that the actual PCT northern terminus or southern terminus, both of them are actually not that exciting as far as locations are concerned. They just have that monument sitting there that makes a relatively mundane place be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, southern terminus is right at the border fence, and northern terminus uh, there is no fence, so it's just uh, right in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I somehow, yeah, that's tough. When I hiked the southbound, I started in Manning Park because this was back in two thousand six when I guess they hadn't had this regulation where you can't. I wonder how many people actually do and just say screw it, fuck it, I'm just going to go sneak in. Do do you know southbounders who actually just start at Manning Park and go? Because when I, when I did it, I actually passed two rangers who were on the trail, on the PCT. I remember because it was like in the afternoon or something like that. And I just walked by them and I was like, oh, shit, they're going to ask me for my permit. They're going to ask me for my passport. They're going to ask me for all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So and luckily I had all those things, but I just was afraid that they're going to get irritated from something and i just said hi and they looked at me and said hi and i just kept walking <laughs> i guess uh, things got really changed so i never heard many southbounders who started from mining park so what they do is go to hearts pass which is 30 miles south of uh, canadian border and uh, hike, yo-yo yeah hike to the border touch the monument take a picture and hike back the 30 miles to Hearts Pass and then keep going south. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess that's what you got to do for some people. Um, okay, and then what were, if you had to do the PCT all over again, wh- or if you were advising somebody who's listening to this and thinking about doing the PCT, what advice would you give them again? Um, hike your own hike. Okay. Like, There's a great book written by that, some, <laughs> some asshole, but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think that's the most important thing I really learned on PCT. Don't try to catch up anybody or don't try to beat anybody, you know. Just keep your own pace. When you're hungry, you stop and eat, take a rest, you know. Uh, Or if you feel good, just keep going, even though other people might uh, stop and camp someplace. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so don't be afraid to be just uh, be alone. Don't afraid to be alone that's uh, one, uh otherwise i would give what how how many times during the pct let's say it took you roughly 200 days i don't know how many days it took you um 188 days so i f- started on march 15th and ended on september 18th so 188 days but i waited up the storm and i took other zeros so 
uh, total hiking days is roughly 155 days or so. Okay, and of those 155 days, how many when you camped were you within, let's say, 100 or 200 meters of some other hikers, some other through hikers or any campers or versus being completely alone? Where, I mean, not completely, but, you know, in other words, nobody within earshot or eyesight, mm. eyesight of, you know. Were you alone? What would you say? What percentage of those days? Uh, probably half and half. Okay. All right. So you had you you made almost an effort, I imagine, to try to find sometimes some solitude. Mm, well, I didn't particularly try hard to find solitude, but because I was hiking alone and uh, I didn't even really pay attention. Even if I camped in the same site as other hikers, um, typically I just you know did my own thing I ate dinner and went mm -hmm. to sleep my sometimes I you know did a little chit chat but uh, mm -hmm. yeah that's what I, I did very good okay now let's talk about your Camino Santiago again you did the PCT about 12 years after I did it and it was super different experience um, there was about two three hundred people going on the PCT my year and you had just two, three hundred people going southbound alone and about two thousand or so going northbound. Um, now, with the Camino Santiago, when I did it, I thought it was I was a, like a busy year because there was thousands of people doing Camino Santiago. But boy, am I wrong uh, that I did the Camino Santiago about eight years ago, nine years ago. And you just did it last year. And. The scale, the amount of hikers is just a. I can't even process it. Yes, Camino de Santiago was very crowded. So I started on September 6th at San Jean-Pierre de Port and finished at uh, uh, Compostela de Santiago, Santiago de Compostela on October 12th. So about five weeks? That's a, yeah, that's about right. But I took uh, four zeros in the big towns just mm -hmm. to do a sightseeing, take rest. Um, so coming to the Santiago doesn't have any permit or quota. So theoretically, you know, thousands of people could start the same day. And I s when I did uh, started on September 6, I think a few hundred people start on the same day. And uh, as you may know, September is probably the best time of the year to do Camino de Santiago uh, weather-wise. So a lot of people know that. And uh, yeah. So the only reason that it doesn't get more people is simply that a lot of Europeans have their vacations in July and August. And so I think July and August are still the busiest times for El Camino Santiago. But as you say, for those who have a little bit of flexibility in their schedule, the optimal time weather-wise is indeed September. Yes. And uh, actually, I was told, so if you look at the number of finishers, you're right, July and August are the peak. But if you look at the number of people who start at San Jepi de Port, I was told that September is the peak, and then next peak is in May. Oh, wow, I, that yeah. I didn't know. It's not all people hike the whole thing in one year. Right, 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 right. right, right. Especially, you know, a lot of people do just the last 100 kilometers from Saria. So, yeah, a lot of people finish in July and August, but uh, the real peak of starting at the Sanjay Pedipur 
was September, August. Interesting. Yeah, I started, by the way, just as a point of reference, I started around the middle of October, if I remember correctly, somewhere around there. And I think I finished in the middle of November, mm -hmm. I think something like that is around that zone. So about a month or so later than you. And I and of course, eight years earlier, <laughs> um, and the combination of those two things, I think, made it so that I had far fewer people. But I thought it was a lot of people. I was like, wow! But now it's just un unbelievable. Yeah. But what what did you love about the trail about Camino Santiago? Because I wrote this famous article that everybody hates: uh, ten reasons why El Camino de Santiago sucks. What a lot of people don't know is that there's also ten reasons why it's great in there. So, but so let's focus on the positive. Um, what did you love about El Camino de Santiago and who would you recommend to do El Camino de Santiago? Uh, I think the best part of Camino de Santiago is uh, the culture part. So you go through small villages, a lot, a lot of them, and you see you know, all the churches, uh, old buildings, or even like a place where the f uh, oldest human remains, uh, bones were discovered and things like that. So, in other words, um, there is not much wilderness on Camino de Santiago, but there are a lot of kind of human, you know, uh, cultures part. I think that's the best part of it. Um, yeah. A lot of people, though, rave about the best part being the international crowd, the people, and that. Did you, were you more insular, a little bit more shy? Did you not see that, or... I did see, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people. I stayed in a hostel every single night. And uh, most of the time I had, you know, in a group dinner kind of situation. So I liked the part, of course, but um, not as, uh, what do you say? So when I hacked PCT, there are lots of crazy people in a good sense, mm. kind of extreme people like you. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't see those too many people on Camino. I'm not a crazy person. I am an <laughs> asshole. Get it straight. <laughs> yeah. So, so for example, I was wearing a backpack called Z-Pax Nero, which is made of Cuban fiber. And uh, I was kind of secretly hoping that that would attract some attention from other hikers and start conversation. But out of thousands of people I met on Camino, only three people said, oh, that's a Cuban fiber pack. <laughs> so I was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Not hardcore hikers here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you probably had a very light pack overall, I imagine, after having gone through the PCT, that really teaches you to make your pack as light as possible, and then you go on the Camino Santiago. Do you have any idea how, how much your pack weighed in El Camino? Uh, my pack weight when I started Camino was about five pounds. And then I bought uh, sandals, so that added maybe another one pound or so, so right. six pounds. Yeah. Right, so you're talking about one and 1.7 kilograms, I mean, very, super light. And maybe people watched you, and I know there's a lot of slack packers, and, and for those who don't know, slack packers are people who leave their main gear and backpack with somebody, and then they drive it ahead of the trail, and then they eventually catch up to their gear and they're able to walk a section of the trail without much at all and just carry a light, you know, like have a water bottle, water bottle and some snacks. So some people probably saw you and just say, oh, 
this guy must be slack packing. And you're like, no, I actually have everything I need. Yes, yes. Yeah, a lot of people were surprised. Uh, most people had like a 25, 30 pounds pack. But you didn't have a shelter, did you? No, I didn't bring my shelter. That was kind of a gamble because it's not always guaranteed to have a shelter in El Camino Santiago, or am I wrong? You are almost uh, 100% guaranteed to have a shelter. Well, but it was so crowded. So a lot of people at the beginning um, couldn't find a bed in town and they had to like, take taxi to next town or take taxi to the town before. And, uh, the one they, they had just spent the night in yeah. <laughs> the previous night. Yeah, and if you think about it, it's only like a 15, 20 miles. So it's not a big deal to get the cab, especially right. with a few other people. Yeah. And the next morning, you know, they taxi back to them. <laughs> yeah right yeah so so think about that guys uh you may but here's what i don't understand is that i guess certain towns have a much better capacity than other ones Mm -hmm. and so as a result even though you're going backwards or you're going forward and you're coming to the next town or the backwards town later in the day because that town has such great capacity you're gonna find something there that's right yeah yeah right so so therefore, where you have to be careful are those villages or small towns that have little sleeping capacity. And those are the ones that you have to get up really early and get in there early afternoon and call it a day kind of early and, and almost stupidly early. I mean, not stupid. I'm putting judgment here because I'm like, why you stop at hiking at 1 p.m.? I mean, for some people, that's plenty. Mm-hmm. I got up at 6 a.m. I stopped at 1 p.m. That's a full day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I don't blame you. I mean, I stopped hiking like even before noon sometimes. Right, because if you continue onward and you want to hike until 6 p.m., you might get to a town and then all of a sudden all the places are full at yes. 6 p.m. Yes, that's that's possible. Yeah. So that's why you kind of want to end around noon <laughs> and start at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't start at 3 p.m., but a lot of people... 3 a.m., I said. Yeah. A lot of people start hiking like 5 a.m., which is completely dark, when the sunrise was like almost 7. So, yeah, people start early and stop hiking early. That was kind of common pattern. Yeah. yeah. Which I guess, I don't know. I, uh, to me, it seems suboptimal, but what do I know? Um, and, and you also told me privately, you said to me that almost nobody has a sleeping, ge- you know, like tent, tarp, something that they sleep outside, you almost never would see that. No, you almost never see anybody camping outside. Uh, There are very few places you can legally camp, but most of the places, you know, probably you don't make anybody unhappy. You know, it's just a big field and you could camp, but I almost never saw anybody. Which is funny because I only stayed, I did the opposite. I stayed in only a couple of albergues. Albergues are the these huts or these little um, dormitories that people could sleep in. And because they're kind of loud and crowded and snores and everything like that, I just like, I was like, I would much rather sleep outside where it's quiet. And my trick, in case anybody wants to reproduce it, is just go it until it's sunset and then you call it a night and then you get up at 
before dawn and then you hit the trail. I, you know, for me, it worked. And you can stop at the albergue to have lunch. You could even pay $2 and get a shower and, and then you feel freshened up. After your shower, you walk off. You get into the albergue at, let's say, in the afternoon. You take your shower, you eat your meal, and then you leave fresh, clean clothes, everything, and you're walking out into the sunset, if you will, and then you only walk for maybe a couple of miles, maybe 30 minutes, whatever. And then you find a place in the middle of nowhere and you camp mm -hmm. clean, quiet. And then you didn't pay anything, by the way. You saved money also. Mm -hmm. And then and and then you get up the next morning and do it and, and you keep doing that. That, that was my system. Mm. <laughs> so it worked. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like more like a you know, PCT or a video scamping style. But, uh, but for the record, um, the arbagis or hostels are pretty cheap yes. still, um, like uh, around, right around 10 euros to like $11 per night. In, and sometimes that even include meals. And some places are actually donation based. So, you know, you can pay only you can. So, yeah, um, saving money. I mean, hiking coming to Santiago is not super expensive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And imagining that you do, let's say, 40 days or something like that, and you're spending $10, it's like $500 or so to do in lodging fees or something like that total yeah. for the whole time. If you stay at a hotel or a hostel, should I say. The only challenge is if that hostels, there's few cases where I imagine the cheap option is full and therefore you have to spring for a private hotel or bed and breakfast. And that's when all of a sudden it's not just 10 euros it's actually 50 euros or more mm -hmm. yeah that can happen yeah yeah okay let's move on and and uh any lessons that you advice you would say to people who are thinking about doing el camino de santiago what would you say you've given us your advice on the pct what about el camino um so camino de santiago is pilgrimage trail for christians so I so if you're really you know into Christianity, then I think you will really enjoy Camino, and uh, you can drop by church at every town and attend the uh, mass or the service, and I really recommend taking advantage of it. But if you're not really Christian like me, a Buddhist, I would. Um, to say so i would you know recommend rethinking doing the whole thing this may not be a really good you know, advice per se but uh, um, because you know you don't see any like a spectacular mountains or streams or anything mm -hmm. so it could be a little bit repetitive mm -hmm. and uh, there are lots of road walking and stuff so you maybe you know you might want to do like only half of it or last 100 kilometers and spend other time traveling in different parts of Europe, for example. Yeah. You spent a lot of time in Europe. You spent six months. You stretched your visa to the maximum. Uh, no, no, three months. So oh, I'm sorry. I hiked Camino for five weeks, and then I stayed another six and a half weeks in Europe, going uh, 11 different countries. So, yes, three months. My advice, by the way, in my website, for those who really like wilderness, and it's not far from the Camino Santiago, is the Pyrenees. And the Pyrenees has some spectacular mountains, rugged mountains, streams, and uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful scenery 
for those who like the Pacific Crest Trail, go do the Pyrenees, and then you'll find that it's uh, you'll you'll be richly rewarded. And they also have a extensive hut system. They have paid huts where there are people there, and they might have food that you pay for. And then they also have like first come first serve huts, and those first come first serve huts are hard to get if you're doing it in July, August, which is when everybody else wants to go. But um, I appreciate your advice on El Camino Santiago. Now I want your advice on veganism. So when did you decide, did, when you were born in Japan and you grew up in Japan, you were not a vegan, were you? You had to eat sushi. Isn't that part of your like diet, like your mother's milk has sushi in it or something? <laughs> yeah, uh, when I was in Japan, I was not vegan at all. I became vegan seven years ago, roughly. So before that, I was just eat anything diet. Yeah. Okay. And what was the epiphany or the moment when you realized? Did you like a lot of people who are vegans? They first become vegetarian, and then after some time, they eventually become vegan. Mm -hmm. Did you just go straight into veganism? Yes, I switched from omnivore to one hundred percent vegan on day one, and uh, the reason I became vegan was for health reason uh i was not on medication or anything but i passed 40s and uh, you know my body was not as strong as when i was younger and you know i was running out of breath after just walking three miles on a flat ground and i did a lot of research and thought you know how can i stay active until uh, into 70s and 80s and I found this diet called Whole Food Plant-Based Diet. And uh, Whole Foods Market was promoting the diet. Because the CEO of Whole Foods at that time, Joe Mackey, is vegan and Whole Food Plant-Based. So they're promoting the diet uh, called Engine 2 Diet. And they had a 28-day program to try the diet. And they had the uh, uh, cooking class, uh, and seminars, how to uh, read nutrition levels, and they even had an exercise class. So I attended the program for 28 days, and they even had the blood test in Whole Foods before and after. And uh, I was a little high on the cholesterol that time, but my numbers just improved dramatically in 28 days. And I also felt really good. My body was lighter. So I just decided to continue it. <coughs> Got it. And. It's interesting because you come from the nation that has the longest living people. And so, therefore, a lot of people studied the Japanese diet because, well, they must be doing something right. I mean, if they're living longer than any other homo sapien, maybe we should copy their way of life, which is what whatever their exercise regimen is, going up Fujisan, and then maybe eating what the, whatever they're eating. But you decided to reject that and go for a different diet. Yeah, but Japanese diet is pretty heavy on the vegetables in the first place because meat is so expensive in Japan, naturally. So people eat uh, meat much less than U.S. But, but they eat a lot of fish and other seafood. And so why do you think, do you think seafood is actually bad for you? I think so. Uh, you know, it, it's all, you know, if you eat it in a moderation, uh, I think that's okay. But, you know, I'm kind of perfectionist, so it's easier to convince myself, okay, I'm going to just become vegan. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, if I start eating fish again, I don't know where to stop. 
And, and speaking about perfectionism, this is, you know, I've been to many vegan households and I'm a quasi vegan. I'm certainly, in other words, I like to eat like a vegan, but I'm not fanatical about it. So I, I eat whatever in the end, especially when I travel to exotic places, I like to eat whatever the local food is. And I've noticed that some of the vegan places I go to or I've heard of that they don't want you to be cooking meat with their kitchen utensils or their pots and pans and don't cook any of that fish or meat using my kitchen. Or in some extreme cases, they don't want you to have uh, the meat or chicken in the refrigerator also, you know, just because, and I'm like, well, I'm not forcing anybody to eat it. I'm not eating in front of you. I'm like, no, I don't even want it in my fridge. Like, okay. So I thought this was an extreme case of vegan of, you know, like a militant vegan but you told me it may not be what percentage of vegans you think might agree with that level of you know no i don't want this stuff don't use my kitchen utensils for your meat do you have any i know you don't know but what's your best guess since you have a club here in reno of vegans right yes i'm an organizer of a vegan group called beijing V. yeah and we have about 800 members what's it called again Veg NV NV stands for Nevada. Right. Yeah. And uh, but uh, regarding your question, if somebody is one hundred percent vegan, I think it's highly likely that the person is just like you said. They don't want to even see the raw meat or raw fish, and let alone you know. Or cooked. Or cooked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 It really kind of changes your perception. So I was uh, walking in uh, Costco the other day and uh, they were doing uh, samples of um, kind of raw ham so they are slicing uh, raw meat inside the Costco and I haven't seen the raw meat for a long time and I watched and it was just so revolting yeah like a, it was shocking to me because you know the meat is red meat you know is being cut inside store that's really shocking to me (laughs) at first i find this kind of strange and like extreme but then i started thinking about that recently and saying okay well what if let's say i for those who let's say you're to you the listener somebody who's listening to this podcast i just imagine that me francis really likes to eat shit I like dog shit, I like bird shit, and that's what I love to eat. And then me, Francis, your fellow podcast host here, wants to go to your house and I'm put some dog shit on your pan and fry it up with some maybe olive oil and some garlic. And I, you know, use your spatula and your utensils to kind of stir up the dog shit with the garlic and then... I eat it. And I'm like, well, what's the problem here? Yeah. And so, and then similarly, let's say I like, uh, I'm just putting dog shit in your freezer or in your, you know, like, what's the problem? <laughs> right. And so uh, it, once you think of it like that, then all of a sudden I think the vegan response doesn't seem that extreme because for them, you know, you may say, well, you can just clean the, the pan. I'm not asking you, you know, why don't you just scrub the pan after I cook my meat on it and it's no longer the meat particles are gone, you know, effectively gone. Maybe mm-hmm. nothing you can see or smell or feel. 
But again, if I told you the same thing, like, well, just take the dog shit and just like, after I eat it, you know, just clean up the pan for the dog shit and you'll be fine. You know, it won't smell like dog shit anymore. <laughs> and you'll be like, <laughs> and, yeah. right. And so, and when you put it in those terms, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, now I get it because yeah. they find meat revolting right, and they find right. animal eating animals disgusting yeah and so when you do that then all of a sudden it all starts to make sense yeah yeah that's a really kind of extreme but pretty <laughs> close you know expression to what vegans feel i think yeah to them or to me it's not really food so something that is not food is in kitchen which feels really weird right right yeah, yeah. it's like you know shit is not food so why is it in my kitchen yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know if it's like a you know block of cheese or something which doesn't even look like animal product then you know i'm kind of okay but uh, if well, what like if i had cheese what if i had shit that didn't look like shit <laughs> <laughs> you know like it wasn't brown or you know dark you know it was just like a yellow shit you know yeah. like had some sort of strange they ate yeah. something you know how about that yeah i'm okay with that. <laughs> oh yes <laughs> great so there you go come to gen's house and bring yellow shit and you'll he'll he'll let you get away with it do you think that the society will be changing do you think there's any way that you could convince people who are listening to this that why they should become vegan um yeah um so there are three reasons you should be vegan and one is what traditional veganism is about uh, compassion for animals and uh recently one more be, uh, people become vegan for health reason it's really good for your health so and third reason third reason is for environment and raising you know cows chickens uh, pigs and also uh, fish they re- have really high environmental impact so and it really um, become a big reason for that uh, it's really becoming a big reason for climate change so that's uh, three reasons people should be vegan. And uh, because I became vegan for health reasons, I can really speak for that part. And I hiked PCT eating 100% vegan food. And a lot of people told me that, uh, you know, that must be really challenging. Where do you get protein? Do you get enough, you know, nutrition? But to me, I was able to finish PCT because I ate vegan diet. And I was 50 and I hiked PCT. And not many 50-year-old people can through hike PCT. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would say, you know, eat healthy vegan diet. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. And there's a lot of Olympians who are either vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. And uh, I imagine you look at a vegetarian a little bit more like a friendly cousin as opposed to, I mean, I imagine it's like if the whole world became vegetarian, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be disappointed. No, yeah. I mean, you know, even if you eat meat, just uh, increase, you know, your intake of vegetables and fruits. That should really help yourself and the environment. And, you know, you feel good about not, you know, being cruel to many animals. Right. And the animal cruelty is something that a lot of people don't even pay attention to because we don't, uh, it's not covered in the media very often. And yeah. as a result, and, and we'd rather just not know. I just like, what would you tell people to say, but, you know, again, listen, I buy... Uh, farm grass-fed meat or organic meat uh, from the local meat guy, and so I'm my pork is not 
poorly treated. It was a nice pig. He had a nice life. He doesn't. In, he's not in a factory farm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people justify. They go to Whole Foods and then they buy that most expensive uh, chicken that they can find mm-hmm. because it's a free range, whatever chicken and that kind of stuff. So what would you say to those people? Well, that's probably certainly better than uh, buying, you know, regular meat that uh, were from the cows you know, confined in a s- really small places. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you are killing life. And uh, um, for example, if you kill a cow, you can eat only like 30% of the cow body and the rest is basically wasted, you know, so. Why is it wasted? Because you can eat like a head or bones or, uh, you know, skins and stuff, other stuff. So it's not really, you know, efficient way to get nutrients from nature. Are you bullish in the long term later in like the next 10, 20 years about clean meat and lab grown meat, that kind of stuff where they just they don't grow the head and all that stuff. If you just want to have a chicken leg, they just grow the meat of the chicken leg without the bone, without the cartilage and all the stuff that we wouldn't eat anyway. And certainly not without the feathers and all the other stuff that a chicken has. And so it's just a much more efficient way of raising chicken and by the way the chicken actually didn't live it's mm-hmm. just a, uh, a a thing that was grown in through in the fact in a, in a factory in a laboratory of some sort yeah if somebody really wants to eat animal protein then i think that's the way to go right now it's very you know expensive to grow uh, those meat cells animal cells in the lab but i think that's the way it goes and also there are lots of um, those fake meat like impossible and beyond and those are getting really good and you can't even tell the difference between your meat and those meat so that's another kind of you know um direction for a long time i actually thought that vegetarian burgers tasted actually better than real burgers and they're they're loaded with spices and all that other stuff i mean like wow this is great yeah 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 it really depends on how you cook and you can make really delicious food using only plant-based ingredients Right. And here's the funny thing is that I interviewed this guy named Tomas Higby and he's in my podcast. I can't remember what episode, but a long time ago, you can search for it on my website, Thomas Higby. He look for environmentalism on my website and he's a big environmental advocate. And so are you. And here's the interesting thing. Neither of you have kids. No. Right. right. And so what I'm saying is that a lot of people will have, uh, you know, will they have kids and you would think that if, well, I guess there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, you think that you would, if you had children, you should care a lot about the environment because you're going to pass this planet onto them and to your next descendants, mm-hmm. your great grandchildren, great great grandchildren. So therefore, you should really give a shit about this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if you, I guess, if you're truly environmentalist, then you don't have kids at all. Mm-hmm. Really. <laughs> Right, because that's the way you have them. In other words, if the Homo sapien population decreased from nearly eight, you know, seven and a half billion or so, mm-hmm. down to one billion, mm-hmm. assuming, then all of a sudden we would have far less impact on this planet if we we're just one billion of us versus we're going on to eight billion soon. Okay. So I'm just saying that the 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 most environment, like I would, if 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 somebody asked me who's more environmentally uh, impactful. Mm-hmm. The guy who's a vegan who has two children, mm-hmm. 
or the guy who's eating meat every day and has no children, the guy who has no, I mean, over the long term, the guy who has no children and ate meat every day has less impact over the long term than the guy who was a vegan and had children. What do you think? Um, I think it depends on how you raise your children. You know, if you raise your children and educate them really well, and they do good things about society, then I think that makes more sense. And uh, that's a better solution than everybody not having kids. Well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm never, I'm, I'm never, we're, we are living things and living things have to reproduce. That's what we do. Yeah, it's right. in our DNA. It's in our programming. So right. the idea that we'll, we're all giving up reproducing is just impossible because it's just fundamentally in our DNA. It's coded there. That's so right. we have to reproduce. Yeah. You and me who have not reproduced are kind of weirdos. I mean, we're like genetic anomalies mm-hmm. um, that, that rarely happens in nature Mm -hmm. and so and and by the way i'm not suggesting that having children is bad i'm just Mm -hmm. saying that if you are a crazy environmentalist and that's one of the things that pisses me off a little not pisses me off it sounds strong but Mm -hmm. al gore he's this al gore is the poster child for environmentalism and you know global time he has four fucking children Mm -hmm. i'm like dude i i agree with you again that you can raise your children in an environmentally uh responsible way but it's but it's kind of, I mean, unless you make them live in deep in the Congo, mm-hmm. it's hard to raise a child and not have a significant carbon footprint mm-hmm. in modern rich society that you and I live in. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as a result, you can teach them to do recycling, to not, you know, to reuse and to eat, become vegan and to turn off the lights and have solar panels and drive electric cars and and try not to fly too often and do all these things but in the end if they're going to school and mm-hmm. commuting and you know whatever they're having an impact i mean mm-hmm. so i just think that you can raise your children responsibly but if you're really a diehard and i'm not asking anybody who's listening to this to be diehard i'm just i just get irritated when i see some self-righteous environmentalist mm-hmm. who sit there and puff themselves up and say they're the best environmentalists in the world. And then they have four fucking children. I'm like, dude, look at yourself in the mirror for a second. Look at your true impact in life. Mm-hmm. And then, so I, I'm, I try to be environmentalist myself, but I don't give a fuck about other people who want to like, you know, if you want to ha- buy a big SUV, if you want to eat meat every day, all right, that's your thing. Hike your own hike, have your fun. It's not what I would do, but you know, go ahead. That's, you know, your, your, your thing. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I never um, had. That's a new kind of uh, you know viewpoint to me. So yeah, <laughs> I learn new things. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Always the polite Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about investments. Um, so you retired. Uh, you you well. Let's go back. Take a step back. Before you retired, you read about something called FIRE. It's an acronym called FIRE, F-I-R-E. So explain to people who I've never heard of FIRE until you talked to me about it. What is it and why should anybody care? Okay, so uh, actually I didn't hear that term before I uh, left my last employment. And uh, so FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Got it. And by the way, for those, you worked at Google for how many years? Uh, I worked for Google for six years. 
Only six years. That's it. Wow. So you were recruited from Google when you were, oh, I'm sorry. Let me summarize. You were working at Sun Microsystems in Japan, yes, and then you got transferred to Silicon Valley's Sun Microsystems. Yeah. And from there, you changed your visa to a visa that allowed you to work for anybody. And then you switched over to Google for the last six years of your honest living. Honest living, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And um, Before you became a criminal. Criminal, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I left Google. A life of crime on the PCT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to kind of enjoy more time, freedom, than keep working another, you know, ten, twenty years just to buy, uh, you know, another uh, vacation home. I, I, not another because I don't have any vacation home, or you know, something uh, material. And uh, so the fire people uh, or fire movement people's goal is to build the nest egg for retirement as quickly as possible by radically reducing expenses. For example, you don't buy new clothes, you buy always buy used clothes and things like that. And retire in 40s or even 30s in extreme case and spend your time on something you're passionate about uh, in my case it, uh, I love hiking right now so I can because I have time I can hike uh, I can spend six months hiking PCT I can spend three months traveling Europe and stuff so <coughs> yeah that's kind of new relatively new lifestyle a lot of young people start to follow got it and now you were working at Google and you had this plan from the get-go from when did this idea of trying to reduce your cost of living and stretching out your savings mm -hmm. come did it come while you were working at Google no it, I was just like that since I was a child okay. yeah I yet tried to you know, save money as much as possible and uh, I think a lot of engineers have that kind of, you know, optimizing mentality. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And, and, and speaking about engineers, how do you engineer your investments? And what is your thought process for somebody who's listening to this and maybe they have saved up $5,000 and they want to invest $5,000? What would you advise them? And they want to grow it to $50,000 or $500,000. What would you advise them? I would advise starting with uh, index investment. So index is basically average of group of stocks. So the most famous index is called SP500, uh, which is uh, basically average of 500 companies stock. And there are US-based companies, the 500 biggest, the S&P 500 is the US-based companies. So you only have exposure to the United States market on that index. That's correct. I guess you could argue, actually, some people have argued that it's not just U.S. because m these 500 companies are almost all multinationals and have exposure to the global markets. So Coca-Cola will, you know, if problems are happening in Africa, Coca-Cola will feel it. And so will General Motors and so will Microsoft if China's having problems, et cetera. Right, right, right. And the uh, good thing about index investment is, you know, if one of those 500 companies go bankrupt, you will not be affected. But if all 500 companies, uh, you know, revenue goes down, profit goes down, then that means the whole economy is going down. So a lot of people will worry about it and try to reverse them, you know, movement. 
so in a sense you can just kind of you know sleep and watch your investment to grow so what is in your portfolio again are, do you have only S&P or you've gotten like five or ten index funds what do you do okay so that's how I recommend people to start investing and then you depending on your background and strengths you can deviate from it so in my case I have a lot of experience in uh, high-tech industry I worked in high-tech for 14 years I have a master's degree in computer science so I know a lot about high-tech so I started adding individual stocks of high-tech companies so I started with index fund but gradually I switched to individual stock investment but I would, I'm still long-term investor so all the stock I have was like I, when I bought some stock in like 2010 so I'm holding the stock for 10 years mm-hmm. and I very 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 almost never sell stocks within one year Right. Yeah, because then you pay higher tax consequences. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you were a big fan of the FANGs, the Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Netflix, I suppose, and probably some others. Yeah, um, I like those companies. Although I don't invest in Netflix because just uh, I don't know about these days, but back in like 2010 or so, the stock was too volatile so it goes seven percent in one day and goes down two percent next day for apparently no reason and i can't just you know have such kind of volatilities so and also i don't think netflix is strictly a high-tech stock because they don't you know invest new technologies They're, they're great companies and they're doing great business but it's not kind of um it's not something I'm really good at judging, you know, if some Netflix is doing good, uh, doing good or bad. Name me three companies right now in 2020 that you like for the next decade, for this decade of the 2020s, that you think by 2030 they will have outperformed the S&P 500. Um, I would rather not answer the question okay. because I don't want to make, you know, give an investment advice. Oh, that's and true. I let's 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 put that little thing. You, you know, if it doesn't go well. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so yes. So none of the things you're hearing here are investment advice. Don't <laughs> sue me, you fucking asshole. <laughs> so, um, yes, this is not investment advice, but you can still, I don't know. Come on, you can say the names of the companies. Well, nobody knows that you're not Warren Buffett. You're just these are your opinions, and 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 anybody who's listening to this, you don't have to follow. I'm just curious what you think are. But if you don't want to answer, I fine. I'll, I'll give up on pressing. Yeah, but I I can say that high tech companies are still good investment in general compared to other industries. They're what like, about the QQQ? QQQ is a Nasdaq index fund. And so, yeah, that's a good candidate if, you know, you are familiar with high-tech industries. But um, I don't think anybody should invest in uh, high-tech companies just because they have been doing well in the past. So what I'm trying to say is that you should learn about yourself and your strengths and investing in that area so if somebody's really familiar with 
say cars that person should invest in automobile industry because that person can tell if you know one company is doing well or not doing good job or not that's is the peter lynch philosophy peter lynch i don't know if you heard of him yeah i heard the name yes yeah so peter lynch was this awesome stock picker in the 1980s i think it was and certainly 1990s he ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund. Anyway, he was a superstar, and he said exactly what you said. The only problem I have with that is that sometimes when you're too close to the business or you know the industry too well, that sometimes you are so bullish about a certain industry. You're like, wow, I, you know, I study diapers all day long. I really think diapers are going to be the next, you know, they're going to continue to be great. And you may, not, you may oversee the fact that there's fewer babies going on, and so maybe diapers are not going to take off, for example. And so I think it pays... Uh, I think it is a good idea to invest in what you know, but I think it's also intellig- it's, in, it's 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 good to realize some big demographic trends, and and I think in the case of technology, technology often in the long long term is something that's super important because if you look at any society that's super powerful, it's always got the best technology. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's rare that a superpower or any great power rises and has shitty technology <laughs> it just look at the egyptians they had badass technology look at the persian empire when they were you know they had good technology for their day um any com- uh, any country that was at the top of their performance when they were doing well had high tech for their mm-hmm. period of time and mm-hmm. so investing in high tech is a good thing because that's it's kind of helps wealth creation one way or another, it's involved in the wealth creation mm-hmm. and the growing. And aband- And that, that doesn't mean that American high-tech will always be good, but just high-tech in general. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's going to come out of South Korea. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's going to come out of uh, Czech, the Czech, Czechia. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so, um, okay, so investment funds, index funds, that's what you kind of advise people to, to look into. Yeah. And, then, and then also lower your standard of living to a certain extent to get rid of stuff. And I think backpacking really teaches you that really well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, You know, backpacking, you carry only something you you really need, only essentials. So, yeah, that really um, influenced my investment style too, yeah. Influenced your investments? Uh, Okay, let me take it back. Yeah, uh, lifestyle. Okay, yeah. lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, okay. So. And, and and by the way, I'm. I, this is the second time I'm staying in your apartment, and for since nobody can see it, I can see it. It's pretty minimalist. There's very almost no furniture anywhere. It's very Spartan. Um, you have just a few dishes. Although you know your your refrigerator has a surprising amount of food for a single guy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but other than that, I mean, you really have a minimalist life and i think a lot of people who are let's say jealous of people like you and me who have a lot of free time Mm -hmm. they don't realize all the things we quote unquote sacrifice you and i don't feel like it's a sacrifice Mm -hmm. but it for some people who are used to love to accumulate things it is a sacrifice now one of the benefits and maybe we should end on this is having those investments and having that free time has allowed you to do something that was quite remarkable. Last year, after uh, you 
got into your car and drove up and down the PCT. Tell us, and, and what were you doing? And tell us about that experience. Okay, so when I hacked the PCT in 2018, I met a lot of trail angels or supporters of PCT hikers. <clears throat> and they gave me food, they gave me lodging, they gave me rides from trailhead to town. And I had so much, I received so much that I wanted to give back to the community. So one of the goals of 2019 for me was to return the favor to the community. And uh, I drove along PCT. I all went all the way down to San Diego and took a hiker from San, Dia San Diego to Southern Terminus. That was my first trail engine. And I drove along all the towns on PCT and sometimes I gave a ride, sometimes I gave hikers like a sodas and fruits and stuff. And so I kind of relieved my PCT, you know, days and it was really fun. So I spent about, let's see, mid-May to end of August doing that. Give us a story from that experience that was particularly memorable, either funny or scary or interesting or whatever. Somebody you met that was a character, who knows? Um, well, there was no you know, scary moment because I was just driving along PCT mostly. But uh, I met a really interesting hiker. Uh, actually, you mentioned his name earlier, but Scott Williamson, who hiked PCT seven times, I think, including... I think uh, more than a ten, actually. I, I could be wrong. Times. Okay, I may be wrong. He might have... Oh, anyway, I, I'm pretty sure he's done 10. But I, I, what okay. the hell do I know? Scott, if you're listening, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he was a very nice person and uh, very inspirational. Yeah, and I met him at uh, uh, Raving Songs Roost near uh, Hearts Pass, uh, near Winthrop. Yeah. So this is extreme north. Yeah, very north. And almost northern uh, end of PCT. And what was he doing there? He was just hiking around in Washington, and uh, he was like, taking rest at uh, Ravensong's Roost, which is out of the Trail Angels place, for three or four days. And I hurt my uh, uh, my foot that time, so I was taking the rest there for three or four days, and I got to know him, and uh, he told me a lot about his experience, and uh, yeah, he was great. He lives in Truckee, I think. Yes, and he works for forest service or doing some forest work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think, yeah, I definitely need to talk with him too. Okay, and now for the next year or two, you're thinking about, we'll end the podcast on just briefly mentioning your future plans. I think you want to go to New Zealand, Nepal, and Patagonia. Yes, um, yeah, I met so many people who have been to Nepal and they told me a good thing about it and uh, uh, I look at the picture and they look great. So right now I'm researching how to hike Nepal eating only vegan foods. And also I've never been to Southern Hemisphere and I heard really good thing about New Zealand and uh, Patagonia. So yeah, that's my, those three are uh, next on list. I imagine that eating vegan in Nepal can't be that hard because I imagine rice is there. I've never been to Nepal, so what the hell do I know? But I imagine that rice is their base, and they must have like soybeans and things like that. Or is it, it's possible, right? They do. They have those things. But I also heard they put milk in everything, so it can be challenging. Yeah, we'll see. But I already found a, quite a few vegan some trekking tours in Nepal. 
but I'm not a big fan of joining a tour. I want to make my own itinerary. So I'm still doing a research. Yeah. Got it. Very good. Well, thank you again. Now, if people want to follow you, I know you're on Instagram. And do you also have like a, I think maybe we're connected on Facebook. Sorry if I can't remember. But if somebody wants to follow along what you're doing, maybe get your vegan tips or uh, what, what should they do to find you? Uh, I'm on the Facebook, but probably easiest way to find me is on Instagram, Super Vegan Hikes. Then uh, anybody can send me a message and yeah, we can go from there. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for what you've done for the through hiking community and the PCT hiking community last year for doing all that trail magic, being a trail angel. Uh, it's one of the benefits of having lived the life you live to, to have that extra time and then to use it productively. And I wish you the best in your future journeys. Um, and thank you for inspiring some people, I hope, to become vegan. You're welcome. And thanks for inviting me to your podcast, Francis. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.